Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My new book, How Minds Change, is out there, printed on paper, available as an ebook, listenable as an audiobook in some places, and soon to be available as an audiobook in all places. How Minds Change is an exploration of the science behind how and why we change our minds, how and why we don't, what that phrase even means. And it explores the resistance of conspiratorial thinking, ideology, political partisanship, cults and pseudo-cults, as well as what it takes to break through that kind of resistance when it comes to changing minds on matters factual, moral, ethical, political, and otherwise. It's a very on-the-ground book. I spent time in person with scientists, activists, people who had left cults and pseudocults and other conspiratorial communities and things like that. And by the end, you get real actionable advice on how you can apply all that to repair relationships, improve communication, and change minds about the things you care about, whether that's between you and one person within an institution or part of activism and outreach aimed for an audience of millions. For more info on the book, and to enter a contest to win a copy of the book, and to watch a roundtable video with experts from the book, and so much more, check out the link in the show notes in your podcast player. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 239. Our guest in this episode is the behavioral scientist John Levy, who wrote a book titled You're Invited. The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. The book details how John had no money, no reputation, or status, but was still able to convince groups of Nobel laureates, Olympians, celebrities, Fortune 500 executives, and even a princess to not only give him advice, but cook him dinner, wash his dishes, sweep his floors, and then thank him for the experience. It's all very positive and benevolent, and it's about creating networks to create change in the world. And at the time of our recording, John had hosted 227 dinners across 10 cities and 10 countries with more than 2,000 people, building a network, a private community that is now known as The Influencers, which has grown into the largest private group of its kind worldwide. In the book, Levy goes through all the science behind what works and what doesn't when it comes to creating a network like this, and how to create something like this in your own life, how to connect with people, reconnect with people, build community. And that's what we talk about in the interview, as well as the loneliness epidemic, competitive dog grooming, the Ikea effect, and all the things he learned about influence, creating and managing his dinner parties, and how to maybe, just maybe, use what he's learned to change the world for the better. 
Uh, my name is John Levy. I'm a human behavioral scientist, and I spend most of my life convincing people to cook me absolutely terrible meals. <laughs> and I really have so much respect for what you figured out here, and we'll get into it in a second. I, I wanted to to first just say, like, how has COVID affected your grand scheme? Because your grand scheme requires people to get together and do stuff in person. So what did you do? Uh, so first of all, I've been eating much better meals uh, <laughs> because my scheme is all about usually about 12 people who have no idea how to cook preparing a meal together. And so it, you know, it's usually burritos. And the the comment I make is like, listen, for a lot less money, I could be eating Chipotle and it would taste a lot better. <laughs> uh, so um, I, when sheltering at home started, I didn't do what everybody else did, which was a lift and shift, right? Everybody else took their in-person activities and said, oh, we're going to put them online. Uh, but that's not really how human beings interact with either technology or or media, right? So if I took a radio show and then just like put it on television, it tends not to be that interesting mm -hmm. because the medium allows you to do things that are much more dynamic. Um, and so when what we did was we took the basic principles of everything that we do in person and then figured out how to take those principles and bring them to life in a meaningful way across Zoom or whatever digital platform we were using. And so it became this highly interactive, at times it turned into a full game show uh, where all the attendees were participants and actors and active in the experience as opposed to like pumping through a third rate video recording of a music concert that you could see better on YouTube. This that you're telling me and just your history uh, your story, which we'll, we'll consider all this foreshadowing. We'll get to all of it. Uh, but the, you, um, remind me a great deal. Uh, not the, not your humanity, not your personhood, but your, your obsession reminds me a great deal of, uh, I have two friends in space that work in spaces that do this sort of thing. One is Misha Globerman in Toronto, who, uh, just that's his, his also his obsession is how do you get people together in a room and see what happens? And he mm -hmm. has turned that into his profession. And then over COVID, he also came up with these wild ideas over zoom and other things to make, uh, to do experiments. And then the other person is, uh, Alistair Kroll who uh, runs conferences, but he, his actual obsession is how do I get people I know to meet each other. And mm -hmm. because he does a lot of conferences, he sees a lot, he comes across a lot of people who are working in something that he thinks would synthesize with this person, but they don't know it yet. And he puts people together. So when I started reading about your stuff and watching your Ted talk and everything, I was like, wow, there's a couple of these people out there. I don't know how many there are because it's, it takes a very particular kind of person. It takes a, a incredible amount of effort and you have to, <laughs> and, but the results, if you like actually pull it off are amazing. So that being said, and that's just to ingratiate myself to you. So uh, I let me pull all the way back. And just for the people who are listening, you're a scientist, you're a behavioral scientist. So tell me a little bit about what about your academic background? How, like, tell me a little bit about your sciencey scienceness. <laughs> so I actually ended up doing research much later in life than most uh, people who get interested into it. I, I at one of my dinners, I hosted a pretty well-known neuroscientist by the name of Moran Cerf. He's a brilliant guy. He was like the first one who kind of figured out how to project thoughts. Uh, and 
he said, you know, part of my job is to find people who should be doing research in academia and foster that skill in them. Uh, and I think you should start doing research. I think I was like 33 at the time. Hmm. And he's like, let's start doing research together and see where it goes. And so my, I said, okay, if I'm going to be doing this kind of work, let me bring my magic. You know, my magic is around connecting with people, building trust and giving them a sense of belonging. And so I was able to get companies that would never open up their data, like never to say, okay, what do you want to do? And so we were able to use a full year of data from the dating app Hinge and did the largest, I think it's the largest study in history on dating. And we looked at 421 million potential matches between people and asked what actually gets people to start dating. And you know how people say opposites attract? Mm -hmm. Total lie. <laughs> they do not attract almost ever. There are very rare occasions, uh, but across every characteristic, the more similar you are, the more likely you are to date. And that shouldn't surprise us because things that are familiar, we tend to like more. It's called the mere exposure effect. And so if we had the same haircut, we would feel more comfortable around each other, right? Homogenous groups are easy. The one exception that we really did find, which I thought was super funny, was uh, I expected introverts to want to date introverts and extroverts to date extroverts. And they probably would, except for one problem. The introverts never start conversations. So you need kind of at least one extrovert. And if both people are extroverts, there's a ton of dating taking place. So the other weird things we found is like, if you have the same initials, you're more than 11% more likely to date. Whoa, that's, that's weird. Isn't it? uh, it's called implicit egotism. It's kind of like that extreme version of the mere exposure effect. Anything that reminds us of ourselves is a, more appealing. Implicit egotism goes on the big list of things that I want to learn more about. I like this a lot. The fact that you went straight to Hinge and that we have information from Hinge, I find that really cool because there's a, a lot of interesting research has come out of um, Hinge and um, Match and uh, OkCupid, mm -hmm. like just stuff about how people work. There are some uncomfortable truths that come out of it also that I find really compelling. But yeah. I and and I'm reading your and I read a good portion of your book. Uh, that the, what was uh, what, oh, thank what I, you. and I was like, uh, this is great. This is because uh, you pepper a lot of psychology in there too. But you also have a pretty. I mean, you have a unique opportunity to speak with so many different people and be plugged into so many different worlds. Mm. You're so intensely networked that you can cr present a book that has a lot more to offer than just pop psychology. I'm, I'm wondering though, and I don't, I don't think I've been able to find this anywhere. What were you doing before you started researching the, that stuff? Oh, uh, so. I was uh, at a failed tech startup because that was the cool thing to do in the early 2000s uh, and mid 2000s. And then I was right before I was at um, Rodale, which owns men's health, women's health, runner's world. And the company doesn't really exist anymore. They sold to Hearst. Hearst. Um, but uh, they had a research, uh, a library sciences team. So they had, I think it was three or five people, I don't even remember at this point, that we could ask any question and they'd pull the research. And then I would use that research to develop strategies for companies. We were part of the in-house agency. And so that's when I really, really started getting into applied behavioral science because I'd, day in, day out, I'd find the latest kind of studies that would have an impact. That's so cool. 
your book let's talk about how this this whole thing gets started because i love that you uh i just love that you pulled off what to me is like a really like a behavioral bank heist uh (laughs) you you really pulled this is like the marvel universe time heist (laughs) like fancier people Uh um so you have this book uh, called "You're Invited," and I imagine this book is the result of you know just the fact that you came up, you did this really amazing thing, and then you you sort of back propagate through it all the science behind it. Also, it, so it happened both ways, oh, right? Tell me. So there, so in the sense that I came to some very clear conclusions, and I was like, okay, I have to build around these principles. And then, as you're running it, and I'm doing research, and I come across more research then I augment it because it's a living, breathing thing, right? I've hosted 227 dinners across 10 cities in three wow. countries. Over what time scale is that? 227? Uh, it, just over a decade. I'll be honest, I don't really remember the exact date of the first dinner. It was either 2009 or 2010, but it took kind of like a year to develop the concept. So I was running a bunch of dinners that weren't the influencers dinner before then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could see like the initial elements of it. Like a bunch of friends would come out over Friday night, we cook dinner and hang out. And so you're like, okay, I start seeing like the pieces because everybody thinks that an innovation just happens, right? Like suddenly you have an idea, you build the Iron Man suit. And it's not like that. It's, you know, you take inspiration throughout, you obsess over the ideas, you build parts of things, you try them. And then eventually you, it evolves and develops and grows. and it looks nothing like it did on day one. What made you even want to do this at all in the first place? <laughs> so I was uh, 28, uh, maybe 29. And I was like the stereotypical person, quote, like not living up to their potential. Right? <laughs> I was like underemployed. I was heavily in debt from school. I, you know, overweight. I would beat myself up every day for not waking up at 6 a.m. to work out. And the, like, I, I wanted some kind of change. And I'd keep reading like personal development books and pop science books. And those things help. It's great. Like, it's, you know, that knowledge is super helpful. But I'm not sure if you've noticed this. There's a huge gap between like the advice that Bill Gates will give you and what's actually applicable to your life. Right. <laughs> right. And, And the issue is, I would argue, in reproducibility, right? So what I love about the sciences is that if you have the same problem with the same conditions, and I tell you the protocol, you should be able to recreate it within a certain margin of error, right? Mm -hmm. So it's reproducible. I could read every book by every billionaire and never reproduce what they did. And that's, I think, one of the fundamental problems is that the advice that we're taking isn't based on actual research. It's worked for one person at one time under a specific set of conditions. Mm -hmm. Survivorship, survivorship bias. Yep, exactly. That's exactly it. And, you know, otherwise the best bet would be get into Harvard and drop out because you'll become a billionaire Mm -hmm. like Bill Gates (laughs) and Mark Zuckerberg. Right. (laughs) So... The question became, uh, what, what's kind of more universal? And I was sitting in a seminar, and the leader said that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. 
And I said, huh, maybe I'm taking the wrong approach. Maybe what I should focus on less is, uh, is having perfect self-control and like uh, waking up early every day. Maybe instead of that, I should focus on having friends that really enjoy exercise. So that way it'll be a natural part of my routine. Because then, David, when the two of us are hanging out, you'll say, hey, let's go for a run instead of, oh, let's go for like cocktails. And then I have healthier habits by the people I surround myself with. And there's this wonderful study done by Christakis and Fowler. Uh, they were looking at the obesity epidemic and they were curious if it spreads from person to person like a cold or if it's more like a percentage of the population thing. And what they found was startling that if you have a friend who's obese, your probability increases by 45%. Your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance and their friends have a 5% increased chance. This is the Farmington Heart Study, if I'm correct. I think it took the data from it. Okay. But, and it's like, yeah. um, just, it's insane how much data that thing has. And how long we'll pick up right here in the conversation after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. 
you have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No. You get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing. Absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com dot com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. The Farmington Heart Study, if I'm correct. I think it took the data from it. Okay. But, and it's like yeah. um, just, it's insane how much data that thing has and how long it's been recorded and how many yeah. things you can pull out of it. And now there's like computer models that turn it into this warping mass of, it looks like a old chemistry, uh, stick and ball kind of thing. And, and you can, you can use this incredible resource to study all sorts of things. And I, I have had a similar feeling as you have looking into it. Like I cannot believe how much is in, how much is I am being influenced by people I don't know but who do know people I do know to the point that like, I think there's, I've seen a list of like 120 things from smoking to obesity to just about anything that can be habitual is, yeah. is influenced 
by people. Marriage and know. divorce rates, smoking. That's habits, huge. Voting that's huge. It because it because it cascades through the network. It it, tri it it ripples through the network, but in three dimensions and maybe more dimensions than that because there's I, social I, dimensions. I think it's important to point out that there are several factors. One is that if we met at the gym, we're more likely to be healthier. So part of it is homophily, right? Like birds of a feather flock together. Part of it is that there's also a direct like influence, right? So if I kind of like the spread of fax machines, right? Once I had a fax machine and you didn't, and we needed to exchange documents, it became a lot more appealing for you to have a fax machine and things spread through networks. And now half the listeners are like, what's a fax machine? <laughs> it's like an email that sounds like you're firing bombs <laughs> over a phone line. It's a printer I can call that sits in your house <laughs> and it prints out what I tell it to. It's very strange. We did. You remember the Back to the Future 2 when they were, predicted that there would be fax machines in every room of the house? <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, and no. now And we'd be wearing double ties. Now that I wish we were doing, like I don't know why someone has a, tried to start the double tie look because I thought it was pretty neat. It's really hard to like knot it. Well, I would assume mind. I would assume it would come with this. Like if you know, if we've got self lacing shoes, we should have double tie shirts. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, that that kind of points to this idea that not only is it important to curate the people in your life, but there's this kind of non-directly obvious characteristic of that, those studies, which is that if we want something to spread faster through the network, we should introduce people to each other. So if I think that you're really wonderful and I have five other friends that I think are great, it's in my best interest to introduce you to all of them. Mm -hmm. Because the stronger the social ties are between you, the greater level of connectivity we'll have, right? Mm -hmm. And the more influence we'll have on one another. Mm -hmm. Now, if I think you're a terrible human being, I want to avoid you at all costs. But like, the interesting thing about this is we all kind of know this to some degree, but we don't live like it's true. And so I said, what would it be like if I actually took this to the next level, right? The, if I said, okay, if people have such a profound impact on one another, then not only do I want to meet the most influential people across industry, but I want them to connect with each other so that there's a strong, densely packed collection of social ties. And that ultimately is called a community. So I started looking at any research that could help me understand this better. And that also included like, I'm going to interview an admin that works with a famous executive to understand what their lives are actually like. And their lives are nothing like the image that you would think, right? If, if you're a, an executive, you, your image of them, or even like a celebrity, is that they're like at swanky parties all the time and doing really sexy things. Being on set at a movie is not sexy. <laughs> it's work. Mm -hmm. You're mostly sitting around waiting for your turn. Things are constantly going wrong. People are tired and cranky. It's work. Then 3% of the time, maybe they get to do something super sexy that gets a lot of attention, like the Grammys, the Emmys, whatever it is, right? The Oscars. The people constantly want things from them. They're constantly getting requests. Everybody expects them to agree to do things, either donate, right? Like, so there's a lot of social pressures. 
And I figured if I could understand their social pressures, that's where my access point would be because it would allow me to differentiate myself by not doing what everybody else does. And so after a whole bunch of research, I ended up with this completely absurd idea, which was I was going to get people to come to my home, cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors, and then thank me for it. Uh, and this became known as the influencers dinner. So we invited 12 people at a time. Well, hold on. Let me stop here. How did you yeah. pick these people? And then how did you invite them? So the, the simple answer is nowadays I don't pick them. We have a, a board of people who picks them. Mm -hmm. uh, I try to stay away from it because I like to be surprised to find out who I'm sitting with. Um, in the early days, I didn't have a huge selection uh, because I didn't know people. I'm a child of, in, of immigrants. I didn't come from like the quote unquote right family. Uh, my parents did well when I was like later in life, but when I was a kid, I mean, they're both artists. Um, the so what I ended up doing was inviting people who were pretty awesome, but not like famous or anything like that. Uh, and we define somebody, or what I did was I separated people into different levels of influence. So you have like the global influencers, like the Oprah's, Sir Richard Branson's, Bill Gates, Beyonce, right? You have the industry level influencers. These are CEOs of the Fortune 500, right? The CMOs, the people who have industry respect through their thought leadership, right? So you could be a professor, you could be an author, journalist. Uh, your position, you're the editor in chief, you're the CFO, whatever, right? Or previous success. So, David, if you had built up an amazing company like Activision Blizzard and then sold it, you've got street cred. I don't, you don't need to prove anything else to anyone. You could be Tom from MySpace. I think you're awesome, right? Like Tom is awesome. Heard. I follow Tom on Instagram. I'm like, he's really yeah. living the life. He's a good photographer, right? Yeah, he's great. Yeah. I know. I heard that like after all, he really wanted to do was travel and photograph stuff. And uh, I think that that's awesome that he actually did that because it's so tempting to just try to like, you know, go back into the grind. Yeah, yeah, or go to Mars or something. But he's he's just go. He's going in. A, I think the phrase is die on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> he's, that's right. He's, uh, he's going on an inward journey instead. And I find that really compelling. So Tom, yeah. I, I, like, I wish they'd met, they should make a movie about it, him. Like I would like to see, uh, the I social like to network see, too. Yeah. I want to I see a Tom. David Fincher movie about Tom. I want nine inch nails to do the, the music. It would be cool. Like, I'm not joking. I would love that. This is why I can't actually be a billionaire because I would make, I would fund that movie and I would make Goonies too and uh, starring Josh Brolin and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and that it, is, it all begins the day after the snap yeah, when they realize right. that the only ones <laughs> the only, <laughs> the, that's right. The Goonies are the only ones who could the Goonies save have us. to go find a way to get them. And they're the uh, ones that really saved the Marvel. Universe. Yeah. The, this I, I could, I'm, if anyone's hearing this, that is a solid pitch. Greenlight it now. I will take no credit. I uh, I hear Gizmo really helped it all come together. <laughs> That's good. Now we're getting into Ready Player One territory. We can't get too many pop references. This is, um, okay, I'm with you on this. I'm following your story. I like that you plan to have these people together, but you have a quirk in here that I thought was really cool, and I don't <laughs> want you to miss, uh, to, to move past it, which is 
the people don't get to know each other. The, the people who come don't know who each other. They don't it's know, completely they, anonymous. They don't Not know like the hacker group, but yeah. like they don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They don't know what the other people do, what, why they've been invited. They don't, then they may not even know who they are at all, uh, which is a big part of it. So if you'll start, if you'll go, if I can jump back in your story from there. So they get, uh, people are invited via email. Most of the time they've had zero contact with us ahead of time. And when we looked at what would compel people, we were able to kind of find a handful of cues, including novelty and belonging and all these other things. And, uh, and so we tell people, that uh, they'll be one of 12, that when they arrive, they're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name, Mm. that they'll be cooking dinner together, and that when we sit to eat, we'll be playing a game where we try and guess what everybody does. And that uh, if you want to know who the other guests are, uh, we're not going to tell you, but we will tell you the types of people who come. And those are Nobel laureates, Olympians, editors in chief, um, who else? Uh, celebrities, uh, Oscar winners, Grammy winners. I mean, you name it. We've had everybody. We've hosted over two thousand people at two hundred twenty-seven dinners, and uh, so it's developed into quite the community. And then after about half of the dinners, we also host an experience called Inspired Culture. And Inspired Culture is a salon where we have about sixty to one hundred people. And then in that group, uh, three people kind of jump out and nobody knows who they're going to be. And they give presentations. So like 10 minutes each with two minutes Q&A, but it'll be Bill Nye, the science guy and Larry Wilmore and, you know, uh, Bjarke Ingalls, the famed architect and when the former Roots will perform and one of the, you know, so on and so forth. And uh, it really, it's like a treat. It's super fun. Uh, it's very tiring <laughs> to be uh, honest. This but, is so cool. And you pulled out of this like a formula, which I really dig. Uh, I'll just prompt you with just that much so you can fill the rest in. But but to prepare people listening, you did this enough for you started to feel like you had hit on something important that can be um, articulated as a as a like a social formula. So what is yeah. That? So I want to emphasize this is a formula that nobody would ever bother solving. It's just (laughs) in the sense that it demonstrates kind of a relationship between things. Um, And that is that uh, our influence, our ability to have an impact on people or an outcome is really a factor of three things. The first is who we're connected to because you really can't influence anybody that you're not connected to. You can try to have some of that like secondary, right? Through people you have in common, but it's much harder to do in a predictable way. Uh, The second is how much they trust you because unlike force, uh, influence is kind of an opt-in thing. You're, um, at least the way that we talk about it now, there are things that influence us like the temperature in the room that we don't pay attention to, but you've got to be pretty deliberate to turn up the temperature in the room in order to affect people's behavior. And that's like some Disney theme park or casino type mm-hmm. of stuff. Or, or 1970s social science. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here, I'm going to lock they, you they in this they... room with dressed like a cop and let's <laughs> see what that's happens. Right, that's right. They fill the room with smoke. Everybody's an actor, but you. Yes. And, and, everybody's, and everybody's calm. That's a real study that I love where the, everybody's calm, but the room slowly fills with smoke and they measure uh, 
how long people sit there until they go, hey, shouldn't we be worried about the smoke? And mm. the variable was how many people were actors versus uh, yeah subjects. Cohorts. And, so, uh, yeah. and, the, and that's scary because the they would wait way past the point where you would die because they're like, well, nobody's freaking out. So I guess I'm the only... I'm curious if you just hire a bunch of people and tell them that it's fine. So it's all actors. <laughs> that's if, a, uh, if just like they sit there and die. That's no, it's supposed good. to be this way. That's because good, they don't know the others are actors, do they? I don't uh, know. Well, that makes me want to go back and look because, but that's a good 1970s diabolical social science study. So mm -hmm. yeah. So the second factor is trust mm -hmm. because if I don't trust you, uh, then it's going to be really hard for you to influence me. Now I should emphasize, and I go into a little bit of this in the book, but trust is often contextual, meaning that if I need heart surgery, I'm definitely not going to trust you. <laughs> but if I need, you know, uh, hey, do you know, study on X topic, I'll probably come to you and say, hey, uh, any insights? And I'll trust that what you're saying is accurate because that's your specialty. And then the third characteristic is the sense of community that you share. Uh, and the reason is twofold. One is you'll notice, let's say, David, you were traveling through Japan, right? And you met another American who lives in the same block that you do, suddenly you will have an instant rapport with each other. There's no real reason you should, but there's this sense of belonging that you suddenly have, this sense of community. As a byproduct, you have a greater influence. The other reason is what we discussed earlier, which is the closer your social ties are to each other, the easier it is for something to spread across the community. So, the stronger the community, the more ability to influence you have. And so the relationship between those three factors, you could try and quantify it numerically if you want, but I just generally expressed it as that it's uh, who we're connected to times how much they trust us uh, and to the exponent of the level of community that you have. You know, there's like, I don't like it's not something you would solve, right? <laughs> That was good. I mean, I, I that appeals to me, but uh, I, I appreciate that you were like, I probably should explain this as a full book uh, yeah. <laughs> instead of just putting out this formula and saying I figured it out. What about uh, what about the the variables? I don't mean to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you, but I, I didn't want to get away from what you're saying here until you mentioned uh, novelty and the IKEA effect and how mm -hmm. these are very important for what plugs into this formula you're talking about. Oh, for sure. Uh, so. I think the first thing to realize is that in general, everything that we do for all three of those categories uh, is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and here's what I mean. In American society, if I, you're turned 21 years old, you're trying to get an internship, you go to somebody for some advice and they're like, listen, your relationships really matter. You have to go out there and do this. What's the this? to succeed. Go out there and network. And nobody likes networking. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe there's like a handful of people, but like in general, nobody likes it. Francesca Gino at HBS uh, did a study that found that people's implicit association to it is that they feel dirty. But they don't feel that way about making friends. Mm -hmm. And so our fundamental con um, context for how we build relationships is off. We see it as a transaction 
where we are using one another and feel bad about it. Instead of how do people make friends and how do I get a like, how do I get them to want to connect with me in a positive way? And so people generally make friends over shared interests. Um, maybe you're a stamp collector or something. I don't know. And then suddenly you meet other stamp collectors and you become friends over that. Activities, that's more like a, you play soccer. You're a competitive Quidditch player. <laughs> and uh, the third is you have a shared history or culture, right? So you go to your religious institution of whatever every once once a week and you participate in the traditions and as a byproduct you bond with the people around you mm -hmm. and you become friends with them mm -hmm. so that's how people tend to connect but if we really want to get people's attention uh that's not going to be enough right so like i could invite sir richard branson to play soccer <laughs> he might be able to love soccer right like absolutely love it but he gets invited to so much it won't show up on his radar. In general, the more influential a person is, you can say successful, depending on your definition of success, uh, the more demands they have on them, the more isolated they actually tend to feel because it's lonely at the top. So somebody at Oprah's level has layer upon layer of security, including private security, including an executive assistant who probably has an assistant and you know, like manager, agent, staff, heads of companies, everything is designed to keep people away. So the more influential somebody is, if you're a company leader, you're maybe not being stopped on the street, but everybody wants your time and your money, your expertise. Then we need to kind of put a few critical elements in place. Now, among them, I'd say are generosity, right? You want to give without the expectation of anything in return because these people are constantly being asked for stuff. But one of the most important things is novelty. And that is there's a section of the brain called the SNVTA. It's the major novelty center of the brain. And when we experience C or are exposed to something novel, it responds relative and entices us to explore and understand it. Like you literally want to go out and see the thing, do that thing. And the problem is that we keep doing the same stupid junky things over and over again. So people have a launch party with your photo booth and flowers check and food check. And then people awkwardly stand around, around loud music, wondering why they're there. There's nothing novel about that. And so it's not anything that's going to attract us. The other things that are important are the most influential people in our culture. Everybody thinks that they spend their time hanging out with other influential people. And that is just not true. They spend most of their times with their admins and their teams. So if you can curate an environment with other influential people, they'll go far out of their way to be there. Now, I want to emphasize this. When I started, I did not know influential people. I knew a handful of people who were across industry who did very well. But because of the consistency that I continuously ran the dinners at, over time, I was able to find email addresses for people and bump into people at events and say, hey, I'm running this and get recommendations of other people. And over time, it became 
something more impressive. But I didn't know like the people I know now. That took me a decade to get there. Well, it took me much less to get there, but you know, now it's just a lot more people. <laughs> yeah, and now you are one of these people who probably get invited to lots of things. You would think. I think people generally assume that I'm at those things already, and they shouldn't bother me. That's well, or that's, maybe I'm just terrible company. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, this thing about novelty fascinates me mainly uh, because our uh, sense-making brain stuff directs all of this, our sensory modalities to grab up as much information as possible from the salient thing that doesn't seem like we've seen it before or experienced it before. And then we can assimilate it, hopefully, and if we can't, then we get to accommodate and expand the range of our entire abstraction of hierarchy of abstractions and become a more realized entity of some kind, right? So this mm-hmm. appeals to me in a great deal. Thinking about it in terms of the world you're talking about, I just had this strange thought fly through my head, which is the, um, for we who have not been offered a hand onto onto the stage in some way or another, whatever that means in your particular line of of obsession with the world, um, all of it's novel, right? It's like at first, like just the idea that to even be massive novelty already, like, so I want to do that. I want to be invited to one of these photo booth things. I want to go to an award ceremony. I want to go on a movie set. I wanted this novelty. It's, you don't become aware of how quickly you become acclimated to that and how boring it is until you've done it once. The hedonic treadmill, right? Yeah. So, uh, I, I agree completely. You know, I, I used to spend a lot of my life traveling. Um, I was on the road. I don't even know how many days. But there was like one year I went to 19 countries. And what I can tell you is I love traveling and I miss it very much right now. But when you've been to 50 countries, the 51st country is kind of like a mesh of the previous countries, Mm. right? And at a certain point, uh, the joke is, David, do you know it's better than having platinum status with your airline? No, I do not. Please tell me. Getting to see your friends and family, Mm. (laughs) right? So it's kind of at a certain point, right? It, it's got the standard curve. Like it's really great and wonderful up until a point. And then what you're missing out on is more valuable than what you're gaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, when you look at the greatest predictors of human longevity, it isn't number of countries visited. It isn't number of Emmys or Grammys or whatever it is that you've attended. The greatest predictors, number two is, uh, this after genetics, which we can't control. Number two is uh, close social ties. And number one is social integration, right? You're part of the community. And uh, so at a certain point, you got to kind of just say, okay, I get it. This is novel. This is exciting. We need some novelty in our life. And uh, that's great. But once you've experienced it all, then what, <laughs> right? Like there's probably a certain rate at which we want to be consuming novelty. Yeah. Well, this is the genius of what you've pulled off. You combine novelty with social integration and made this thing out of these two. It's a very yin yang thing you did here. You had these, you, this is a matter, antimatter social reaction. <laughs> you, you took, Novelty, which we can Scotty acclim- would be proud of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, your, yeah, yeah, your, uh, you you, you took this thing that we can acclimate to quite 
easily. And a person who is a major influencer at the level of an Oprah or a Nobel laureate is very acclimated to it. So mm-hmm. then you, but then you introduced, what about the novelty of community? What about the novelty of hanging out with human beings and being gross and messy and eating burritos and, and, and. Oh, that- interesting. I always associate it as the novelty of here are a bunch of constraints. You can't talk about work or give them. Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. I mean, but like the, the appeal of it is so, I mean, the downstream effect of the whole thing is this, like you created, I mean, you're, you're turning lead into gold. You're, you're, you're transmutating (laughs) this thing that can feel gross into something that feels the very op- the most opposite of it you can feel as a social primate. And I think that's incredible. You know what's incredible. I think is super funny about this is that, um, is that it's really doing the things that we would naturally be doing if we were in a hunter-gatherer society. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's the joint investment of effort into activities that were traditionally associated with our survival or with play. But it's... There's nothing threatening about it. It is perfectly safe. And, uh, you know, when we haven't gotten to dive into this yet, but the second factor that I keep talking about is trust. And, you know, in American society, the way we try to build trust is often to buy people off, right? I take you out for an expensive business dinner, or I, what's the other thing people do? Oh, I'll invite you to a party that has a swag bag. Now, all of us are really excited to like look in that swag bag and we'll like pull out the one thing that we kind of want, like a kind bar, put in our (laughs) pocket and then literally toss the rest, creating more trash in the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we know that kind of stuff doesn't really work. Right. Now what's odd is the exact opposite does, and it's called the Ikea effect. And it states that people care more about their Ikea furniture because they had to suffer through assembling it. Right? Like anything we invest effort into, we tend to care about more. And that means that we're doing a whole lot of stuff wrong. First of all, uh, I don't know if you were like me growing up, but I never liked asking people for help because I felt like I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do it on my own. But that's dumb. It's <laughs> like so this, dumb. So it literally, I'm causing people to care less about me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? If somebody's offering to invest effort to support me, I should say yes almost every single time, because then they'll care more about me, and I'm going to be better off as a byproduct. It also means that reciprocity is necessary at times. You don't want to be like some selfish taker, right? No, I hear you. I, the way I started this podcast, the first thing I did was I emailed Mark Maron because he had the number one podcast. And mm-hmm. I said, I mean, he doesn't, I don't know Mark Maron. He doesn't know me. I said, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. I don't know what to buy, but I feel like you do. And he emailed me back with a bulleted uh, list of Amazon links that were clickable and said it was too long. Ooh, he, he really enjoyed the affiliate money you made him all $3.25. <laughs> he was Here like, you go, Mark Maron! You genius. <laughs> he like, uh, he said, um, here's what I, here's what I think you should get. Here's what I use. Good luck. That was it. Right. But I can't believe he took time out of his day to do that. It blew my mind. 
I have thankfully, I think, mostly extracted the thing that came out of both of our childhoods, even though I feel that first. I, I feel it first in some sort of chain of like cognition where I'm like, I can do this by myself. And like, like you don't you remember that you can talk to people and I'll, and some people, mo- almost everyone I've emailed has at least emailed me back to say no, thank you, uh, which for some reason is validating. So that's it's huge. The key effect thing is enormous, and it's odd. So much of what you're talking about is counterintuitive because it seems like it it plugs in so well, like you were saying, into our innate propensities, right? If I remember correctly, another thing about that was the that's why you have to have an egg to make uh, to make cake, right? Because the it feels better to bake a cake if you have to do put a little effort into it. You have to. Put, oh, you're talking about okay. So what you're talking about was that famous. I think it was like a 1950s uh product release uh concept where dessert companies tried to sell pre-made cakes at at supermarkets but realized that uh at the time housewives weren't uh liking the idea because they didn't feel like they like they could say it was theirs right when they served it. and so what they did was they created a pre-packaged formula where really all they needed to do was add oil water and eggs and even though that is an inconsequential amount of effort, uh, it allowed them to claim ownership. Let me. I've, I've got notes here from your book, and I wanted to. Uh, you had talked a good bit about trust, and we've talked about the IKEA effect. There's so much in here. I don't even know where to, to start. You've got more than 20 chapters of material. Just so that people know, it's not that I was like overly verbose. Just a bunch of the chapters are really yeah. short. <laughs> it's not. This isn't like a thinking fast, thinking slow book. Where yeah, it's yeah. Like, I mean, you talk about paperweight. sororities, the halo effect, vulnerability loops, moral molecule, the hummingbird problem, what trust is made of, the benefit of belonging, uh, all these things. I will get to one of those if possible, but I know when people listen to shows like this, and I've been told this by about uh, a dozen editors with my own material, because I used to have this propensity to just go, and there's the science, enjoy your life. And they're like, oh, you weren't going to give us any advice? There's there's It's all descriptive and not prescriptive. Mm -hmm. So... I in your book you talk about some things where this could be applied. You know, maybe you want to try this dinner idea that you've come up with, which is fine. But uh, how do how would we? Let's just a, a sort of bounce through a couple of these. How would you apply this to, let's say, um, a business for one, mm-hmm. uh, a, a cause based community two, and then three, your own life, your own social communities. Great. So let's tackle the social communities first, because I think that kind of is the most fun and playful, right? Um, So if you want to build a social circle that you really love, uh, and what we've realized is that human beings connect over interest, activities, or culture, uh, then the first thing you kind of want to ask yourself is, do you want to start something yourself or do you want to join something that already exists? Because some people just aren't going to start stuff. Not everybody needs the entrepreneurial bug, right? Not everybody needs to host a bunch of people in their house. And if you're not going to start stuff, go on to meetup.com and like find communities and then kind of use the knowledge of like the IKEA effect and all that to catalyze the conversations happening more naturally, right? If you are going to start something, here's the most important first step. Have it be something you actually enjoy. Because if I hated dinner time, after running it 20 times, I'd start getting really annoyed. By 50, I would have hated my life. And now at 227, I would rather be dead, right? 
but it's something that I enjoy. So if you enjoy knitting, if you enjoy, uh, what is it, running, if you enjoy board games, all those are an option. Pick something that you love or that you enjoy. And then turn it into something that people could in, get, uh, sorry, that people could invest effort into so that you get that Ikea effect. You like painting? Great. There's a woman in California who did this super cool painting project. She drew one large image across five by five canvases. So 25 canvases in total, invited people to come, gave each of them a canvas to paint essentially by number in any way they wanted. And so it could be any color scheme. And then she would reassemble it into large picture. And that's really nice because then you're standing next to somebody painting. You can be quiet when you want. You can participate in the uh, conversation when you want. And it feels natural. You're not feeling like you're forced into an interview setting, which is miserable. Then what I would do is I'd keep seeing how to make it more novel, how to curate better over time, but you just keep running it. Maybe you do it every week, every month, whatever it is. Consistency is absolutely essential because it's near impossible to build a sense of community if you do it once and then never again. Now, if you're with a company and you're doing this for sales reasons, I think the question is, do you want a diverse group like what I have with the influencers or do you want a homogenous group, right? So there's nothing wrong with having an industry group. But the key is to once again, do something that you enjoy, sure, but that is consistent with the company values. Uh, so I went to an event at Miami Art Basel where a liquor brand had an art exhibit and a performance. The liquor brand is not based in New York, but they had Alicia Keys perform New York. And I had no idea why any of it was going on because it's not a brand that particularly cares about the creative world, right? Certain brands have invested lots of money into creative world, right? Like Life Water is known for partnering with artists. This brand wasn't. So it made no sense. Essentially, it was just a really expensive experience and they got to check off the box that their boss got to hang out with Alicia Keys for a few minutes. And so they felt justified. In the business world, we tend to make up for bad ideas by spending more money. <laughs> that one, frankly, was a bad idea. Uh, unless there was something going on that I didn't know. So the question is, what would have made it a good idea? Well, you want to begin with your company values, right? If you're a nonprofit, it doesn't make sense to have a, that's fighting hunger. It doesn't make sense to be spending $1,000 a plate on food. <laughs> it kind of just continues to show the inequities. Uh, so we don't have enough time to go deep into this, but I would begin with looking at what the organization's core values are and how do you express that with the activity. In some cases, we've done these super fun five-person game shows where the questions actually end up sharing ideas about the issues that the organizations are trying to tackle. So that way we have a natural starting point for a conversation after the game. And by people playing together, then they bond, they feel that Ikea effect. Rather than lecturing somebody and bringing in a speaker to talk at them, it's now fully interactive. So it's novel and different than most experiences, let's say on Zoom. So 
doing things like this changes the game, right? It's uh, it makes it novel, and depending on who you invite, it's well curated, and it's then consistent with the company's values, and you know you can really start forming something, and then iterate it over time. If your mission or your goal, your intention is to change the world itself, and you want to leverage the things that you've learned to create to communities that could then affect larger communities, that they're going to affect even larger communities. Is there anything that you would advise in that in that domain? Wow. Uh, so that's a really big question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm literally asking you, how can I how do you solve the world's problem? Yeah. How do you change um, the world, John? How do you change the world? I think when it comes to social communities uh, or social cause-based activities, uh, what we really forget about is that, um, especially in the early points, it's about the relationship to the issue and the people who run the world. And what we like to do is say, okay, we raised a whole bunch of money, but that's a terrible business model if every year you have to raise money from scratch. So the question is, how do we get people to put in some effort and then increase the effort over time so that they continue to care more and more about the organization? Because if I can get you to give $5, great, that's a good start. Can I then get you to give $10 the next month? That's a better start. Can I get you then to, I don't know, uh, wear the emblem of the organization to host a salon in honor of the cause and invite your friends and give you an activity to run for them? And so I think it's about, if you look, that was the success of the abolitionist movement in the uh, uh, in the history of our country is that there were people who were incredibly dedicated who developed this kind of format for speakers coming and conversations taking place. And then as people were empowered by the community, they were invited to open their own and spread the message. And it really spread person to person. It's nice to have a flash on social media and people like it, but that's not the same as people being dedicated to a movement. And this is also something that I'm obsessed with, the idea of cascades and how social movements mm -hmm. kick off and um, the power of small groups and all those things that, uh, the, and also just the idea that uh, you can strike at a complex system in the exact same way uh, 1,000 times and 999 times, no cascade takes place. And then yeah. on, the, on the thousandth time, it spreads the entire network. Uh, and that's all, you know, out of uh, network science and, uh, there's a couple of good books about how all that works, but I look at uh, there was it was what came to mind immediately when I was looking through your material because I was one of the things that most of those books or those research papers don't say. Actually, they'll get to that point in the paper and they say, "So how how would you make this happen?" And most of the time, I say, "You can't because the network is." too vastly complex for you to know mm -hmm. when there's a percolating local cluster and it's, it's, it's undulating and there you, you, you don't know how to make diffusion. You can't f brute force diffusion for the most part. And so that's when survivorship bias comes in where you're like, we have instances of times when that's happened, but you could probably do the same thing a thousand times. And you start Starbucks on a Tuesday instead of on a, on a Thursday and you don't get, yeah. well, you get one Starbucks, right? So, but Looking at your material, I was like, this guy might have figured something out in this regard. Like, this might be like, I don't know uh, if there's a, if there, there are probably a billion wrong ways, but if there's a, if there's something along the path of the right way, I feel like you're on it. 
uh, because uh, this is how everything has ever happened uh, that that has cascaded beyond a small group of people who are obsessed with something. Uh, uh, there's a documentary right now, and I think it's on Netflix, of competitive dog uh, dying, where you, you you dye a dog to look like a work of art. And I have seen Pennywise the Clown, except it's in the fur of a poodle. And uh, that person won a competition. But what I found more compelling than anything in that documentary was this is a there are that people did it. There's a million people. There's more than a million people that do this every day. And I had no idea they existed. And they have a vast complex community that, that meets and organizes and does stuff. And, uh, I feel like changing the world requires that substrate, that foundation and the things that allow for competitive dog, uh, <laughs> inking also allow for, they allow for just about anything. Right. And you have, you, I feel like, have discovered, and you probably—it's probably a co-discovery, but it's—you've written a book about it, and that changes things about how to brute force start up a social movement of some kind, and it's all about the network more than it is trying to find a tipping point or more than it's trying to find a very particular connected maven of some kind. It's about the network itself. That's what causes things to happen. That's what's influencing you right now. That's how you and I even met and are doing this thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I feel like you have a great and powerful gift, and this book, this Thank book is a way much. for it to go through. I will do my part and promote it, but um, I really appreciate that you that you committed it to something that can that people can can spend time with and then pick apart and then apply to whatever it is they feel needs this you know application. I'm just trying to thank you in some long winded way. <laughs> I'm, I'm really appreciative. I'm also really appreciative that you've introduced me to this world of dog dying because now I'm going to be stuck on YouTube rather than promoting my book. Uh, so it was nice knowing you all. I'm going to go down the deepest recesses of YouTube and inevitably this dog dying uh, documentary will somehow end up with a flat earth video. And the, name of the, the name of it is Well Groomed. And it is uh, it won at South by Southwest. It is about the weird, wondrous world of competitive dog grooming, which sounds like something that it ain't. It is a much more complex world than you might suspect. And please Maybe. invite someone from that to one of your uh, to your one of your dinners. The biggest dog influencer <laughs> I can find. Um, I could talk to you about this forever. I apologize that we don't have more time to dive into it. But the good news is you have a book, which means that anyone who found any any anyone who heard anything here they found interesting and they want to know more about it. There's uh, a lot of chapters and a lot of stuff to get into. So um, start with, uh, with John's TED Talk and then move on to his book. And I think you will, I think you will uh, find that. Uh, start with 12 copies <laughs> of my book and then yeah. I don't really care. Start by buying a with. case of the book and then have a dinner party where yeah. you distribute the book. Uh, and then exactly. we're in business and then <laughs> and do that as many times as you can. Oh, also you have a podcast. Let's mention that too. Uh, no, 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 no. I, you I used, used to have, have a podcast. podcast. Uh, Never mind. But yeah. there's a po there are po yeah. there's a podcast floating around. Uh, but that's you. in the past, and we don't talk about it anymore. So, yeah. John, is there anything else to say before I let you go? I, I feel like I ranted. Uh, I, yes, all of you who are out there, besides obviously buying my book, reach out to your friends, especially the ones who are like introverted and shy, and invite them to do just about anything. Because we are in the midst of a loneliness epidemic, and we need each other a lot and uh, the biggest gift you can give somebody is company right now. You can find John Levy on Twitter at John Levy TLB. That's J-O-N-L-E-V-Y-T-L-B. And on Instagram at the same. His website is yourinvited.com. 
jonlevy.info and his personal website is jonlevy.com. My new book, How Minds Change, you can find a link to all of the information about that in the show notes right there in your podcast player. It goes to the homepage for How Minds Change, where you can find a roundtable video with a group of persuasion experts featured in the book. You can also read a sample chapter, download a discussion guide, sign up for the newsletter, read reviews, and if you scroll to the bottom, you'll find links to all the many, many podcasts and YouTube channels I've been appearing on telling everybody about it. Oh, and there's a link to the contest to win a copy of the book as well in your show notes. Oh, and there's also a link to the newsletter I was going to post there for the first time this week, but I got the COVID, so I'm just getting over that right now. I'll be posting there soon. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, Audible, Amazon, or you'renotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also, we're on Facebook at slash YouAreNotSoSmart. And if you'd like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free. The higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Incompetech. If there was an episode that really meant something to you, gave you value, or you just want to tell people about it, that's the best way to support the show. And uh, check back in two weeks for a fresh new episode. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.